0: All of us are on a journey of becoming, a never-ending journey in pursuit of truth and deeper union with the divine. Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing, and that our journey of becoming can be both difficult and painful. Far too often, we have not been given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson. My good friend Greg Fahnd and I are also on this journey of becoming. We are both dedicated to inviting you into our journeys and creating a space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. We want to take an honest look at the issues and questions so common to this shared journey that we all find ourselves on. We want to genuinely seek out what it means to follow Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our unfolding and expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. We have come to know that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but rather that both doubt and curiosity are two of our biggest allies. We have learned that the Christian faith is more about wisdom and love than it is about correct doctrine or belief. And we believe that we are being invited to continually seek out both wisdom and love, renewing our minds, expanding our hearts, and rethinking our faith, in the process thank you for joining us on that journey all right well welcome back to another episode of the rethinking faith podcast as always i'm josh patterson hanging out with my good buddy and co-host greg ferrand greg how's it going dude good man I know
1: normally this is that segment where we have like ridiculously clever, witty banter, just kind of highlighting our genius and um, our our wisdom. But uh, I'm going to forego that because we kind of have someone here that I owe a great deal of uh, debt to because, Josh, the only reason that the two of us are on this podcast together uh, is because of this other person, kind of like a... They made this this couple possible they they introduced us kind of in this meet cute uh scenario uh and it is our uh guest dan coke and and
2: dan welcome man thank you for being here far be it for me to interrupt or or uh sideline your witty banter
1: <laughs> no no, no. Let, let me tell you something i mean it's we, we can always go there i mean it's just it just flows uh just so easily we, we can return to that anytime but when we have you present who invited me on your podcast a, a while back maybe a year and a half ago and yes, it's had josh on there before because of that podcast josh reached out to me and we just became buddies yeah uh and then from that context uh we became the co host of this. So man, it, 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 all, it all goes back to you, Dan. So thank you, buddy. This is, uh,
2: you're a my podcast fun. children. <laughs> yeah, we, like are hey, yeah, it okay like, if I call
1: you Papa or Abba?
2: The question uh, oh, is whether Mama. or not, the question is whether or not you've weaned off the teat yet or not. Yeah. <laughs> I think you, I think you weaned pretty quick cause I don't, I don't have to have a lot of involvement or anything, you know, you're kind of doing your own thing.
1: That'll be another podcast of Weaning Off of Dan's Podcast Teeth. That'll be a whole other exploration of this one. one day. I but hope one... to be
2: one day. I hope to be like a freshly, uh, freshly having given birth mama pig <laughs> with like 18 <laughs> nipples and like 18 <laughs> podcast children that I helped, lo- you know, push them out of the nest. Now yeah, I'm mixing that is, my uh that's a lot
1: of the metaphors, metaphors between yeah. nipples and nests and um someday but I, I hope it. to I mean, be a
2: big fat pig that... is basically <laughs> no. covered with nipples, covered the... head to toe covered, with nipples. just covered head like a like a biblically accurate nipple pig, Angel. you know <laughs> yeah, covered with in nipples instead of <laughs> eyes.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: and and a flying pig. Flying um, pig this yes. pig can fly because it's biblically accurate. It's like wings. The wings <laughs> also are covered in nipples lots of uh, okay anyway <laughs> if people government. don't if people Good. don't know the biblically accurate angel memes they're not going to get any of that oh well no that's okay no. no but our
0: view count went up just because of the word nipples it's and <laughs> <Wow. laughs> it, it affected the algorithm or something people want to see nipples like that's just a... or hear about them so because this yeah. is an audio thing it's a podcast mm-hmm. um yeah no i <laughs> nipples aside uh, I, I also, uh, want to echo and agree with Greg's, uh, sentiment, Dan, thank you for connecting the two of us, uh, way back when, and now we do a podcast and such. Um, and it's been awesome. And also Greg too. I don't know, uh, if I told you the story, but back when I was like, basically very depressed <laughs> and some other things and was like going to just shut down rethinking faith totally, like, I was like, I'm not going to do it anymore. It's just going to end. I asked Dan if he would do the very last episode with me and we were going to do that. And then I actually kind of had a change of heart and uh, Dan encouraged that. So
1: basically, dance,
0: yeah. dance, cool. So like and like, that's we only part. invited like, you here like, to kiss your ass, Dan. We're gonna ask you for no, 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 ten no, 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 thousand dollars in is, five minutes. This, this is like we'll get to
1: that. So so so, so that that predated <laughs> me. So in some senses, your podcast at that point became his child. And then when I came in, it was almost like another level of grandchild. Like there's layers of generations.
2: I like to of, think of it like I had a sickly baby piglet. And I was yeah. about to put it out of its misery <laughs> by drowning it because it wasn't going to yeah. live. And then no, as right. I as I put the snout in the in the watering hole, we yep. look over and there you are, Greg. And we think, hey, <laughs> Greg, not dead yet. Greg is yep. known for resuscitating dying piglets. Maybe it there's is. something here. Now I'm casting yeah. you as maybe too much, too much of a messianic figure. But uh <laughs> Oh no, because yeah, has that, the no, hair yeah.
0: for it. It's thank good. you. Thank you for the European.
1: <laughs> I mean, my whole thing is the the, the white European Jesus uh, look. Um and the uh pig resurrecting pigs. That's a personal passion and um yeah, and again good naturally. Nipple, 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 nipple. So so with that with that being said, so Dan, on a personal level, both we you just got your ass kissed on many layers Yeah, and can many we levels.
2: let's let's move on because it's a little uncomfortable. Okay. I'm happy to be here. I'm glad you guys are friends. What are we gonna talk about?
1: So let's talk about your beard and your hair and just how handsome oh, you look this. right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, we'll move on to something more something. So, Dan, as we all know, uh if if you're if you're not familiar with this podcast, it's you have permission and it is um thoughtful and complex and uh badass. And there's also a, a really rich uh Patreon group. Um that has really rich discussions. And, and and the wild thing is, of course, no one actually needs permission, but on some level, psychologically, we do. And so that's the power of that particular audience. And I think it's it's very much surfing the same wave, surfing the same kind of heart of what Rethinking Faith is all about, uh, creating safe spaces to explore the depths of what it means to authentically uh, live out our life spiritually, uh, particularly within the complex uh, Christian landscape. But what you may not know uh, about dan is he's also um an incredible musician and uh, i per- did not know that on a personal level until after i was on his podcast and then he i saw some social posts about havana swim club which was uh some music that he put out and so i was just curious i was like this dude's a, 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 an amazing thinker uh he's gonna be a psychologist or forgive me if i'm wrong with that psychologist am i right Psychologist?
2: yeah in a couple of years i'll be a I'll be a psychologist. Yeah. On my way there. All right.
1: On your way there. And then, so he's got, he's got the, the the psychology aspect. He's got the spiritual theological aspect. And now he can't possibly actually be gifted in music as well. But then I looked it up and it's this, it's the perfect. Fucking background soundtrack. Like I've, I put it on like five different personal Spotify playlists and it's, it's this like groove, gentle funk, flow, make you unbrace your body open your heart uh and so i was curious i was like okay i didn't realize it so i started like uh, i shared it with a bunch of friends and i was like do you guys just put this on the background in any in any scenario it's going to help you relax and actually uh embrace uh, and be present in the moment but what i didn't know was your rich history of how you got here and and i do think there's this complex interweaving right so it's we we like to tease people apart and think about your psychological side your spiritual side your theological your philosophical your musical but of course they're utterly interwoven um mm-hmm. so w- what Josh and I were talking about was we what would it be like to have you on and just kind of hear your story like t- take it back i mean with kind of the the, the music as the primary uh, emphasis but what would it be like to take it back and look at your story and both see the interweaving of all of these uh, of threads that create this tapestry of who you are presently, but really kind of giving primary attention to music. um So, let's go back uh, to little little baby Dan. uh that was about to make a, a totally inappropriate joke, which I'm glad I, I edited. I was going back to a nipple comment, but I pulled it back. Um, I think so I let's was bottle little...
2: fed anyway, so it's it's very chased. okay. Yeah. Okay,
1: good. Very <laughs> just yeah. good because we know. <laughs> We, we, of course you were, because that's the purest way and to be fed. all
2: my problems stem from that. Mom, how can you? That's <laughs> fine. I'm sure it was fine. Lack of attachment. Lack of attachment That rubber nipple. 10 years off my life because of Nestle formula. No, uh, well, it's, I just want to say it's, it's interesting that you frame it that way because this, I'm not going to just talk about this new podcast all day, which is called Pretty Good Vibrations. Um, But what's interesting about doing it is the kind of. The whole idea that I came to with it is to use music as the primary lens through which I could understand my past because I've spent the last six years podcasting about religion, psychology, politics, evangelicalism, you know, a little bit of philosophy um, and like I have actually kind of neglected the fact that I've been involved in music uh, more during my life than, than those other disciplines, those other sort of creative pursuits. Uh, and like I started writing songs at 14. That's 25 years ago. I grew up a massive fan of the Beach Boys. I'm sure we'll talk about the Beach Boys a little bit. Um, and then I became a professional rock and roll musician in 2004 which I did till 2012. And then in 2014, I became a commercial composer, which I've done for the last eight years full time, 2012, 2013, whatever, nine, nine ish years. Um, And so that like when I think numerically, that's like a bigger part of my life. I've never gotten a theology degree. I didn't start interviewing people about theology until 2017 or something like that. I didn't even consider becoming a psychologist until after Trump's election. I had Hardly read any psychology, so music is like the the much deeper through line for my life. And so, if I'm wanting to understand childhood, adolescence, teenage years, college years, twenties, music is actually a better angle. In some ways, it's it's a it's a better entrance in anyway. And then what I do with the show and what I do naturally in my own mind is I'm bringing in psychology. I'm bringing in developmental psychology and I'm thinking about my my own context in my family and with my friends and at school and all these things, as well as the music and how it interacts with my faith and all that stuff. So all that is to say, the way you sort of framed it, it's just interesting because that's kind of what I've been doing. And I've been choosing music as the lens because I wanted to do a show that focused on music. Uh, it's been incredibly rewarding. I'm I'm about halfway through. Writing at the at the moment we're talking about halfway through writing the main twelve to fourteen episodes um and it is a lot of writing it's it's written out it's it's almost like writing a memoir, um but writing about all this music and putting all these clips in and all that kind of thing. so I'm right in the thick of it all to say,
0: yeah, right on man well, I think that's fun, like it's interesting, uh just like. I mean, looking back and trying to figure out, like, even for myself, if I try to put myself like in your context, looking back over my life and like, what was the like, what would be a helpful lens? um, I have no idea. And I think actually it might be the kind of thing that I do now, which is this podcast about religion and spirituality, because as long as I can remember, like, that's been my thing.
2: And you went straight into ministry. So that would probably be a good lens for you, Right? right?
0: Right. But for me, it wasn't
2: that way. It was all music, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, like, when you look back then to, like, you know, childhood, um, when, like, when did music really start to uh, be something that you took serious interest in? And how did that, uh, how did your interest in music interact with um, just like your everyday life as an, I don't know, angsty middle school, teenage, whatever Yeah, yeah. <laughs> kid, kid growing up in yeah. where, so, Southern California, Northern uh,
2: Northern California. Uh, Northern California. Yeah. 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 So, okay. Somewhere around seven or eight, a few things start, start at the same time. So somewhere around seven or eight, my mom gives me two cassette tapes. The first one is a compilation put out by Rhino records called surfing hits. And it's got like Wipeout and Surfer Joe, a couple Beach Boys songs, Surf City by Jan and Dean. It's got Surf and Bird by the Trash Men, um, kind of proto-punk garage rock from the early 60s. And the other tape is the Beach Boys' Endless Summer, which is this 1974 greatest hits, which doesn't include anything from Pet Sounds, which is like, wouldn't it be nice? God only knows Sloop John B., because it because in 1974, Pet Sounds is considered a failure commercially and uh, and like critically. And they're embarrassed. They don't put any of those songs on there. But but Endless Summer has like Surf and Safari, Little Deuce Coop, Be True to Your School, Help Me Rhonda. You know, it's got California Girls. It's got well, tons of Beach Boys hits. Uh, and I'm growing up in Northern California. It's always sunny all the time. It's like incredibly temperate. We drive over the hill to Santa Cruz about half an hour each way. We do that all the time. I'm doing that my whole childhood. So I identify as a California kid. I'm listening to the Beach Boys and surf music. But also at the same time, when I'm eight years old in third grade, I start having my first panic attacks and I will have lifelong panic disorder. Um, I like to say it's in remission because I don't really have that many panic attacks anymore, but I'm still prone to them and that kind of anxiety about So panic disorder is like anxiety about anxiety. So what you are worried about with panic disorder is you're worried about having more panic attacks versus generalized anxiety disorder, which is more like just being a a worrisome person. You are worried about things in the world and you have anxiety about them. Generalized anxiety, panic disorder, panic about panic. So I start having panic attacks about thunder. And what's interesting about that is I'm not afraid of lightning, which is actually destructive. Thunder can't do anything. It's just sound. And second of all, I live in fucking Northern California. There is thunder like two days a year, three days a year. And so one of the first questions I've been asking myself sort of first chronologically is like, what was up with that? If I had lived in Florida or New Orleans, would I have been so used to thunder? Would it have been something else? And if it was something else, Would I have loved surf music as much as I did? Was surf music a balm, an antidote to my panic about thunder? I don't know. I mean, my parents, they loved James Taylor. They loved the Beach Boys. Um, It's Northern California in the 80s. I'm going to hear the Beach Boys. And most American kids like the Beach Boys when they hear them. So I don't want to put too much on that. But I do wonder uh, if, if I was kind of extra drawn to the surfing and sun and the beach and all that kind of aesthetic in that music, because it held within it the promise of no thunderstorms and therefore no panic attacks.
1: Wow. Yeah. I I think that speaks to, and that's something you intuited. I mean, just organically at a young age, there was a, um, it reminds me of a experiment that was done. Maybe you've heard about it they brought uh two groups of people in and um they showed them the exact same images uh, the images were of kind of uh uh a section of downtown cities that uh were covered with graffiti um mm. and uh just people in you know walking by themselves and and what they did was with one group of people they showed them the images and they played kind of this uh scary uh daunting uh tense yeah. music and yeah. then asked them for their their emotional responses one word and it was always like desolation fear something bad's uh-huh. about to happen then they showed them the exact another group the exact same images but played some like uh Vivaldi uh four seasons and yeah. then they asked them their impression it was always like uh possibility diversity uh human potential and, yeah. and what they realized that that what defined their perception of reality was not what they were seeing, but the soundtrack that, that, our, that that our soundtrack defines our perception of reality and that the real and, and that all of us right now have a soundtrack playing that a subconscious soundtrack made up of a constellation of emotional experiences, uh, and, and things that have evolved. Some of us, it's going to be a scary soundtrack, a, a, an ominous one, others it's, it's Vivaldi or Bach or you name it. But, we all have the soundtrack and and what was happening what you're describing is well and i just to say i think what we have the capacity to change our soundtrack i do think we have the capacity we're not Mm. stuck with fucking uh halloween three uh uh theme music um but i think what what you were experiencing then was a recognition almost that there was this internal soundtrack for you uh that was being developed um and is even if it's this kind of young uh, connectivity between a fear of thunder and a draw to music that was thunderless yeah uh and,
2: like the in anti-thunder one sense thunder music yeah
1: right the anti-thunder music and what really yeah. that meant was this innate draw to a safe space right you right. were you were beginning yeah. to define your soundtrack and not to jump too far ahead but i already mentioned havana Swim club i i can't wait to hear the connectivity between the beach boys when you were uh, such a young man and then what you developed there because that is like talk about safe space music i mean that is just like the, the music that you're listening to where there's zero thunder uh and havana Swim club uh but coming back to that um so at that age you, you begin to recognize this draw to music um let me just say really quick
2: okay. you made me think of a beach boy song <laughs> There's a Beach Boys song off their uh, album 2020, which is kind of like a it's like a post Pet Sounds sort of singles and B sides. it's kind of a compilation, but it was released as an album. It's called yeah. Add Some Music to Your Day, and it's yeah. all about the like the reasons why and the different ways in which people choose to like have music playing. Yeah. Um. I can go I could go and we should go deeper with this, but first let's just. Make fun of the Beach Boys a little bit. So my favorite is the set the lyrics of the second verse. You'll hear it while you're walking by a neighbor's home. You'll hear it faintly in the distance when you're on the phone. You're sitting in a dentist chair and they've got music for you there. So add some music to your day. I just love that dentist office. Thing. Chair and there. Yeah. Chair and there. You're sitting That's in tight. a dentist chair. Um, but like that was not, it, not
1: Brian Wilson. Brian
2: Wilson did not write that lyric. There's no way Brian see, Wilson wrote who that wrote it? lyric. Uh, that's too, that's too,
1: uh,
2: it's young. Brian Wilson, Joe Knott, and Mike Love. Man. So, okay, you is, know, then uh, the that was Mike. That was Mike. Say. You can always blame everything on Mike Love if you don't, I like blame it on Mike. It. <laughs> um, no, but but I've actually noticed, uh, I've noticed it recently as I've Gotten more psychological education and also in my own therapy, as I have increased in essentially my mindfulness, my awareness of my body, of my emotions, my thoughts. Um, I've noticed a few things. And one of the things that I've started noticing is how much my choice of music can have an effect on my mood or when I will go to what music when in a way that I didn't used to be consciously aware of. And that's been really interesting. And I think I do like the funny, the the kind of funny recent version is I did an episode uh, for pretty good vibrations that will come out eventually with my friend Tyson Motzenbacher, And we did a, like a tournament style, like a bracket tournament of yacht rock bands. So Steely Dan, James Taylor, Fleetwood Mac, Christopher Cross. It was really fun, but that music is super. And I researched a bunch for that episode and discovered a bunch of uh, yacht rock that I didn't know, like songs by Toto that aren't Africa, uh James Taylor songs I didn't know. And I was getting kind of into it, but then, like, I had some bad news in my family, my extended family. And I caught myself going to the fucking yacht rock playlist to escape from my pain. And I was like, this is insane. Like, I it's such a um like a self-fulfilling prophecy kind of a thing where it was like and I I was kind of making fun of that part of yacht rock that it is like it's escapist in like kind of a maybe sometimes an irresponsible way but here I was going to it uh for that very purpose and like it kind of worked and then it also kind of didn't work once I realized that I was doing that then it stopped working it stopped feeling like an escape uh but there respond there's one more angle here about worship music but i want to know if you guys have any responses to beach boys or yacht rock
0: i so i want to ask a question just based off like how you're talking about your use of music i have found something interesting in myself uh that you made me think of because like noelle always jokes with me like she can tell you know when i take a shower in the morning how, how my day has started based off of what kind of music i'm listening to right, right. Um uh, and she'll like, and sometimes I just put on stuff because I like it, and she will be like, "Are you good? like why are you listening to my chemical romance this morning at seven am like I just I don't know whatever, but um, one thing that I think is interesting when and i I'd like your opinion, Dan, and I'm not asking for you know whatever the qualification is, I'm not asking for medical advice or whatever I have to say, so you can answer this um <laughs> not a doctor, yeah, yeah, so. For me, I uh, I'm a big like I'm a big feeler in the sense that like I have a lot of empathy. So when my friends are going through some shit, uh, I kind of bring that onto myself, right? And I can in a in a way that's almost unhealthy because I'm kind of like taking that burden and putting it on myself. However, when it comes to my own negative feelings and emotions, I tend to uh more so push them away and try not to interact and engage with them uh however i love just like whiny emo music <laughs> like a yeah. lot and i think part of it maybe uh is because the empathetic side of me comes out when i'm listening to the music because i can feel there pain or whatever, their sadness, their grief, when like I push my own away. So like at least I'm getting the kind of emotion I feel like I need to feel, but it's coming from an outside source. Does that make any sense? (laughs) Or am I just like making up straight bullshit?
2: (laughs) No, I mean I think that it makes sense. I mean I'm not speaking as a psychology student here. I'm just speaking as a, a person, but like I think that we I think that music is powerful for a number of reasons but one of the reasons is that a song, a recording, whether it has lyrics or not, whether it has vocals or not, um tends to inhabit a feeling, it might be multiple feelings throughout the piece, but a a, a portion of a song will express a feeling and it does it in a way in a kind of a condensed and repeatable way that you know we want to hear it over and over again for any number of reasons. One of those reasons is that it's vicarious emotional processing. Now the hope I think would be that you use it to not avoid your own feelings, but to process them. It's probably true. And I'm, I mean, it's just my sense that people can, people can substitute process, processing their own feelings for the feelings of someone else in a song. I don't know enough about that. I, I I wouldn't want to make a claim either way, but yeah, I mean, I can I can certainly see that for sure. Yeah. Oh, Sorry, Josh, you're going to double down on that?
0: No, well, I was just going to ask because he, he used this language of substitute and then mentioned worship music earlier. And I was going to ask like, and maybe this is too much, like too strongly stated. And so forgive me, but I wonder yeah. then to what extent, uh, and I don't know where you're going with worship music, but to what extent is worship music used as a, uh, substitution, um, in the sense that like, so here's what I mean by that. I think a lot of times, at least in my experience growing up in the tradition that I did, um, of Christianity, uh, discipleship and stuff was just purely head-based discipleship was, let me give you the right ideas and answers. Mm-hmm. And there was no actual, like, um, uh, like transcendence kind of stuff there i didn't have the experiential knowledge of god and so but through worship music like they play in certain keys or use certain lighting colors and such to evoke certain emotions and responses and so like is there a chance that like for me maybe there was some kind of substitution thing going on i'm looking for this experiential aspect of god i'm finding it in worship music because it's the closest thing i have because i'm not actually being given the tools to actually have that uh, genuine experiential. not Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, you
2: might just say that worship music experiences are bodily necessarily in a way that teaching or sermons might not be, often might not be. Where I was going to go is not far off. I was going to bring up Sarah Lane Ritchie, a friend of mine and theologian, and the phrase that she uses to talk about things like worship music is spiritual technologies and she would consider the music the lighting the smoke machine uh the however many people you have like any anything that's sort of setting the mood or is some sort of a conduit for having a religious or spiritual experience she would say that those are spiritual technologies what we sometimes want to say especially coming out of evangelicalism or something like it is we want to point to the ways in which those can be manipulative uh so you could have the lights dimming for instance and the synth pads swelling right as the pastor is asking for money that might be like the most straightforward <laughs> kind of thing there uh, but you could also have a situation where everybody is uh willingly participating in a worship service where they are perfectly uh what's the word i'm looking for uh consenting to having it be like a u2 show and they want to have 45 minutes of a spiritual experience and and great and and what she would say is like i she would sort of caution judging those technologies and she would remind us that we do this kind of thing all the time like i've recently been noticing that i use caffeine as a spiritual technology that if i am caffeinated my prayers uh, not too caffeinated but if i am like if i've got if i've got some of that up of caffeine and I go to a church service or listen to something or whatever, like if I'm, if I'm riding that up wave of caffeine, then I tend to have an easier time sort of locking into the most meaningful aspects of something faith related. And by contrast, if I tried to do that same meditation or listen to that sermon or bid or watch that thing at 3 PM in the midst of my afternoon, lull when i should be a spaniard on on a siesta like i'm it's not going to hit me the same way and that's just true so what do i so then the question is what do you do with that do you say okay all those technologies are bullshit everybody should have no caffeine don't need any sugar uh make yourself as even keeled as possible and Take it, you know, go full Protestant, take down all the adornments in your sanctuaries, don't use any art, no representations, all of that stuff gets in the way. Or do you go the Catholic route to overly simplify Catholic or Orthodox route and go, let's use this, let's use the aesthetics, let's use the rhythms of the day, the month, the year, the seasons, Uh, let's use the rhythms of Holy Week and let's use it as a spiritual technology towards some end? Right, some goal we have of discipleship of some sort. Um, That's a long-winded answer to your question.
1: No, I, I appreciate that, man. And, I, and I, yeah, on a, on a personal level, I mean, at second breath, we talked about this. You know, spiritual practice. I mean, you talk about breath work as a technology. We talk about right. centering prayer, lectio divina, visio divina. I mean, you name all of the different uh, approaches and mindfulness practices; they're all technologies. Uh, and maybe and. And I I do want to get back to your childhood in just a second, but one more uh, leaning in this way. I think one key uh, nuance uh, that is different from that, for example, if we believe, if we approach those experiences and say, almost deifying it, almost saying, uh, codifying it as uh divine reality breaking through. And I, and I do think there can be an experience of that. But if I'm at a U2 concert with all the lights and everything, uh, it is transcendent. I can genuinely say like I've worshipped. Uh, I've met Jesus at a U2 concert and I've been to a bunch of them. Um, but I also am appreciative just of the complexity I'm, I, that I'm not deifying bono maybe a little bit but in general i'm not really deifying uh uh the edge yeah, maybe making um, him a
2: saint a saint a little bit yeah but yeah not, definitely not definitely certainly yeah.
1: but not yeah he's not yeah. he's not levitating um but but there's versus going into that experience and thinking you know this is god breaking through uh there's a recognition of the impact of the technology so if mm-hmm. we recognize that this is my this is a a, a gorgeous little blend of the right uh Synth pattern with caffeine hitting me at the right moment, and uh, the lights oh, they are just that pinky purple, which is exactly what I need right Right, now. Chef's kiss, and we're cognizant of the impact of that on our mammalian uh senses, you know, then we can enjoy it. I feel like there can be an enjoyment, and it doesn't negate the fact that there is something transcendent that breaks through, but I do think it rescues us from uh, I I guess, any, I I guess. I get, maybe maybe the real danger is approaching it with an insider outsider lens of saying that this is, this is this is truth. Yeah. And if you're not experiencing this, then. But anyway, I'm sorry. I I no, I, I love I, this I, stuff. I think you, I the too. cost.
2: I think the benefit of your approach is you can weed out manipulation. You call it what it is. You recognize the factors that go into it, and the downside is you lose the enchantment. You still get transcendence. But yeah. you lose some of the enchantment, the magic of it, uh, because you can kind of point to the constituent parts. and that's really that's the big trade-off of the entire deconstruction System. post-evangelical movement is like uh, and really actually just the modern world, you know, if you yeah. believe Charles Taylor that like, yeah, we're we're disenchanted now for the most part in the modern West, and we have much better cancer meds, but we've paid for it with the disenchantment of our lives and the removing of the magic from our lives. And there are like some cheap ways of pretending that we still have that, uh, like the secret or something, but they don't hold up (laughs) scrutiny and they they don't end up catching on widely because they don't really, it's not true. We kind of know it's not true. Like the way that my friend, Tony Jones says it is like, look, you can, you can believe in enchantment and magic and like the power of prayer or whatever, all you want. But ninety eight percent of people, if they get a cancer diagnosis, the first thing they're call doing is calling the oncologist. like mm-hmm. that's what we actually think will cure our cancer. We don't mm-hmm. we might also pray. We might also hope that these other mm-hmm. enchanted mm-hmm. forms will help something, but we call we call the doctor first. We go to the hospital um, yeah. and that sort of shows that like that's ultimately what we are putting our trust in for physical bodily health type stuff well it's interesting and
1: then to just add a nuance there uh and ag- I agreed that the that, that there is a uh, a trade-off with the loss of the enchantment and the magic um and simultaneously there is within me still uh this deep hope for the possibility of what could evolve in the world uh there is a a deep wonder at the mysteries of the universe. I still get yeah. gobsmacked by a fucking sunset that the yeah. colors I can't believe exist. Um, and, and in that, uh, and pulling it back to music, I find that, uh, music is another, um, portal doorway, uh, and, and, and maybe the closest thing that I would still describe as enchantment, but I would actually just see this, it's a doorway into what feels to me, on a soul level as an access to what is true to what is maybe not true to what is beautiful to to what is hopeful to what is transcendent or simultaneously to what josh was describing earlier with my chemical romance into something angsty or into uh, a, a darkness that i'm having challenge accessing and i find that uh it's almost as if I'm able to access a particular soundtrack or artist in a way that gives me access to something I long for that I can't use without that te- technology. Um, yeah. And, and, and so with that being said, so I, now I want to bring it back. Cause I, I, I do want, I know I want to get back to little, little baby, Dan, uh, little sweet baby, Dan walking around. You know he's finally uh, weaned. He's no longer on that Nestle nipple. Eight and pounds he is, six ounce baby Jesus. Eight pounds six
2: ounce. Eight <laughs> pounds six
1: ounce little baby Dan. He's got that uh, little. That's Rocky a Talladega Nights shirt.
2: quote, by the way. I'm not calling.
1: Yeah, Talladega Jesus. Nights quote. No, that's Talladega Nights. Uh, for those that don't know that, eight pounds six ounce. Uh, six pound eight ounce baby Dan. He's finally he's he's weaned. He's walking on his own. He uh, now has recognized that he loves the Beach Boys. Potentially, it's because it's a thunderless music. And when in your evolution did you make a shift? Because this is a big shift from appreciating music to having the curiosity and maybe kind of the balls to say, you know what, I'm actually going to make music. And maybe maybe it started in seventh grade when we all had to get the recorder. Uh, and you just did. Mary had a little lamb and twinkle twinkle. But like, when did when did you begin to actually shift to creating? Uh, not just not just regurgitating
2: or in music class, but when did you say? Here's something that I'd like to offer from me. Yeah, ninth grade. I don't know exactly why. my My guess is that uh, I did it as soon as I could, sort of cognitively. However, I know children of my friends who are writing music much younger than I was. So it's not. I'm not to not to say that's the first time anybody could. But the type of music I first started writing was punk. I mean, it was like very rudimentary, very simple. And that genre, you know, is built on by, by the 90s anyway. It's built on a, a very do-it-yourself DIY ethic. Uh, a lot of some of these records actually, it turns out, had $80,000 budgets and were produced by, you know, who, these guys who have become mega producers but a lot of them were not and were made on a shoestring for a few grand in someone's garage. Uh, and there was a sense that like, Oh yeah, I could, I mean, we could do this. We had friends playing shows at the rec center every Friday and Saturday night. Why couldn't we be in a band? And so at 14, I joined my first band. I was the drummer. I wrote a couple songs. Other guys wrote songs. Um, our most popular song, I think, which I wrote, is called "Otter Pops," and it's. I'm really glad that there's no recording of it. Um, very, very could silly. Just
1: real quick, I'm just sorry. Could you just break us down? Just what's the heart of Otter Pops? Like where, when you wrote Otter Pops, what was uh-huh. what was the soul message flowing from your loins?
2: It was well, you know. I think I'll just quote the the chorus lyrics when it's hot and I want to eat Otter Pops, Otter Pops, it's my favorite frozen treat, Otter Pops, Otter Pops. <laughs> that was the, that was the message of Otter Pops. Um, I mentioned this in, in one of the episodes, but it sounded a lot like Rise Above by Black Flag, which I don't think is, I think is a coincidence because I was not cool enough to be listening to Black Flag. At 14, I was listening to like, you know, Ska and MXPX and stuff like that. So, um, but yeah, I think, I think in that, in that particular scene, it would be different. Like if you're a metal kid or something, I think your first step is I got to learn to do scales on the guitar. I have to learn to shred. I need to have a certain level of virtuosity if I want to join into this scene because everything is played at a very high level. Punk is not that way. It's like punk is like, you got something to say. You can yell it. You don't even have to be a singer. And you got to find three guys who can play bass drums and guitar and play very simple chords fast. And you scream the thing that you've got to say. And that could be awesome. You just might make something as good as minor threat made. Who knows? It's not like minor threat are virtuosic, right? Like they're 16, 17, 15, when they're making those first records themselves. So. That's probably what it was for me, given that by that point, I was steeped in ska and punk. And ska would have been, by the way, too much. Seven people in the band who plays horns. You have to be able to do the upstrokes on guitars and the power chord. Like, punk, let's do that. And I was a drummer. So I just learned to play fast. And then I was good. I was not a very good drummer.
0: (laughs) What about now? Like, can you... Uh
2: I can I could play like I could do a worship set without any real hiccups but I couldn't play like a rock set uh okay. without a lot of preparation put it that so way So, like
0: if 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 Carter hit you up and was like yo shit just hit the fan we're I playing could not 10 fill in for Emory no no, way. no I could never <laughs> do it right. no. cool Pre- all right appreciate the information um because he was asking me about that no he wasn't um I don't talk to him ever um <laughs> uh but I think so with then uh music, how do you notice you know you talked about how you would utilize music uh to connect in certain ways, but how do you think music influenced you then from uh a I don't know, maybe a more like spiritual perspective, uh growing up? Like in what sense did music lead you to the kind of um I don't know religious faith whatever you want to call it that you have yeah yeah and like does that make sense
2: i've been i've been puzzling over this a lot because a lot of my friends i grew up not uber sheltered like i went to public school kindergarten through fifth grade um but then i went to christian school sixth through the end of high school and i was heavily involved in youth group uh, in junior high and high school And a lot of my friends were only allowed to listen to Christian music albums that were put out by Christian labels, safe for kids kind of a thing. I was not. I was allowed to listen to secular music. My mom came up with a pretty, I think, pretty genius compromise, which was if you find something at the Christian bookstore, I'll pay for it. And if you find something at the regular CD store, you have to pay for it. So I like was incentivized to listen to Christian stuff because it was free to me, but I could listen to other things. And I listened to the radio and I made tapes from the radio and all that stuff. So I think for me, one thing that I know is that by high school, by by late high school, by the time I'm 16, 17. I am associating Jesus with punk rock pretty strongly it is, they are not intention in my mind. I am listening to punk bands talk about the plight of the oppressed bands like propagandi, no effects, bad religion. And I'm like, Oh, it sounds like the good Samaritan sounds like the gospels to me. It sounds like the gospel of Luke. Right. And, and I don't see any problem with it. Um, and I don't know that that's, I don't think that's probably the average experience in that subculture i think other people either felt like straight jacketed by the fact that they could only listen to christian music and so then they perceived the secular music as like against it and some of those secular bands very much portrayed themselves as against faith bad religion has a fucking cross crossed out as their logo that is the bad religion logo uh but i put that sticker on my car and drove that car to youth group so it didn't bother me. I it was all of one piece, and I've really been trying to trying to puzzle out how did that become that way? Why why was it one piece? And I, I, I have a few ideas that I get into in the show. One of them is just that some of these bands, like like Five Iron Frenzy, for instance, who were really concerned with issues of justice and Native American treatment and genocide, uh, you know, Americanism sort of Christian nationalism basically they were writing about in 1996 and I was like yeah fuck all that but I love Jesus and I can do all that you know and and at that point I could still have like a very undisturbed evangelical worldview uh that wasn't I think it's probably different for a 16 year old today but in 1999 I could go yeah I love Jesus uh I experienced Jesus at church Jesus cares about the poor. Punk bands care about the poor. And it was cool. It, it like worked out for me and was not a lot of tension.
1: Yeah, it reminds me of something we talked about when I was on uh, You have Permission. And, you know, we talked about uh, not, I'm not getting into the whole storyline, but people that have heard some of our early episodes here, everything Faith Know it too. But I had a pretty powerful conversion experience, you know, very Technicolor. And we talked about that oftentimes people with very technicolor conversion experiences had kind of a lack of attachment. Uh, and it's that yeah. one of their first real experiences of a sense of attachment. So of course, man, the fucking angels are blowing trumpets and, you know, rainbows are shooting through the skies. Um, and the people that I know that, you know, I've, I've, in, in different interviews I've done uh, throughout the years, I'm always intrigued by the people that have a, a sense of solidity of identity at a young age that they have, a sense of, uh, security that can push against the flow of kind of the communal, uh, tide. Uh, and oftentimes it's not even that effortful. It just seems to be, well, this is just me. Yeah. Um, and you know, I don't really feel like I hit that till my mid late thirties, honestly, uh, in terms of really resting into my identity and figuring out who I was, but I've been, I've got friends that did that shit in their teens and, and, Part of it, I wonder if it's just biological and kind of uh some some uh nature. But I also believe there's that real aspect of the nurture. And, so, and one of the things we talked about on your podcast was that you always or have lamented the fact that you never had this fancy technicolor conversion experience, but then that's the trade-off too, right? Of that you actually had some healthy attachment <laughs> and, yeah. and and a real sense of yourself. But I, I wonder if on some level this exploration of your ease of being able to have a bad religion um sticker on the back of your car and drive it to youth group literally with a cross crossed out yeah, um yeah. and and not have any sense of tension or angst about what I mean, people's. i don't want to oh, i'm
2: sure i had some sense that like okay you know but i could i could but fit but it together it. and it wasn't that hard to fit together yeah
1: right you did You you weren't shit in your pants this wasn't your yes. die on a hill moment no um And so, so I just wonder too, if on some level that was born out of a sense of security of attachment and you knowing you are, I, I I just wondered where, where that, where in your exploration of uh, your comfortability in bringing these two in the cultural context, the streams were completely opposed. And for you, they were just like, well, no, no, no. What what do you mean? It's it's this brackish water that's gorgeous.
2: Uh." Yeah, I think I got to bring my parents into that a little bit. So my mom was a Christian school teacher, but she like told jokes with swear words sometimes. And she had non-Christian friends. And my dad was a therapist. So I was aware pretty young that some people didn't believe in therapy or they thought that was bad, but I was like, obviously that's not bad. And my dad was also like a little bit of a, I don't know, probably kind of like a self-styled, maybe a slight uh, Messiah complex in him, but kind of like a prophetic uh, individual in our community. Like the way that I would describe him is he was kind of a pillar of our church community, which was a fairly large church, maybe, I don't know, maybe call it like 600 families or something like that. And, you know, he had seen a lot of those people in therapy over the years. Nope. He didn't tell me who, but like, you know, that was understood and, but he was never like elected elder or anything like that. And I think partly because he would poke the bear and, you know, there was a, a pretty unethical removal of my friend's dad, who was a long time pastor by the newer head pastor. And my dad wrote this like scathing letter to the elder board, quoting scripture up and down and, and all this stuff. Uh, and they still fired him, you know, he, it didn't work, but my dad was, was still sort of respected and important, but not, you know, not like honored in that public sense. Um, And then, like, for instance, when I was a junior, I might have been a senior, and I was applying to schools, my guidance counselor at the Evangelical High School uh, was like, are you sure you want to study psychology? Uh, I believe that only biblical counseling is an uh, is like legitimate, basically. And my dad wrote this letter to her and she apologized to me (laughs) Uh, and like took it back. And, And so I think I did have a sense of like, oh, you know, like not only do I have their genetics and they were both either like my mom's more the rebel. My dad is more the sort of prophet or whatever, but they both were willing to sort of bend the rules, do their version, stand up for what they thought was important. Uh it was not a sort of Pleasantville Stepford Wives kind of uh you know situation that I was raised in. So my guess is that's the the biggest sort of um factor there.
0: Yeah that's uh that's super cool and interesting man because like for me my experience was like vastly different. Like I uh, when I started getting into music, I had <laughs> the understanding that like, oh, there's these genres that exist, but I have to listen to the Christian version of that.
2: Oh yeah. So did you like, have your own poster of, if you'll like this band, you'll like that band. Or did you just look at the one in youth group on the wall?
0: Yeah, I didn't have my own, so it wasn't <laughs> that bad, but I did yeah. heavily take advice and influence from <laughs> my youth pastor and other Those people. In the
2: yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. And like, uh, yeah. So like for me um, with like heavier stuff, it was always like August Burns Red and For Today, you know, For Today was awesome because they would preach the gospel, you know, halfway through their set every time they performed mm-hmm. uh, or bands like that. Right. Um, and like, I, I actually, I remember the first time I got introduced to like uh, more contemporary Christian music was like, I was at a friend's house and I was like, Oh, Hey, like, uh he asked me what kind of music I like and I kind of explained it and he was like oh well like I have the best band to show you and he handed me a fucking Newsboys CD <laughs> I believe it and that yeah. was the thing oh man no but that was that was super interesting um and then it like took me forever like I used to like
2: so what happened you know, for you Josh when you found the you know some of those Christian bands were great bands and, and yeah could good bands sort of punch their own weight and I when we get to that in the show, I try and give those bands their due, like MXPX, Five Iron Slick Shoes, I think, Craig's brother. But generally speaking, the Christian bands were the watered down, like, worse versions. Um, what did you do when you found, when you were, like, able to listen to the real thing?
0: It felt like I was doing something wrong, but I liked yeah. it. Like, the rebellious side of me liked yeah. it. Like, I remember... Uh, so like my dad was less concerned about this than my mom and so like i remember really wanting this like live green day cd and uh went to like walmart or target or whatever with my dad and was like you know held it up so that the parental advisory sticker was covered by my hand like hey dad this CD is only $10. Like, can we buy but it?
2: You probably couldn't hide the fact that it was called Bullet in a Bible.
0: Bullet was in it a Bible, one? right? It was. <laughs> That's their big live album, right? And my dad yeah. fucking bought it for me. Whoa. And, uh, dude, so we, we, we get in the car and he's like, do you want to listen to your new CD? And I was like, sure. Right. Like I had, you know, I was yeah. like nervous because I knew oh, I was going to be on it. So he put it in, and like my I mean, my dad was always cool about this kind of stuff. Like, yeah, my you know, when my mom would, you know, have to go to like a conference or something, my dad would like stay up late after my brothers went to sleep and be like, Hey, do you want to watch Happy Gilmore? Uh, that kind of thing. So Dude, I want to hang pretty, out with your dad. Hell he's yeah. He's pretty he's pretty fucking awesome. Uh but like we put on the Green Day CD in the car, and you know, the F word is flying oh, immediately,
2: especially live, like Billy Joe is. He's such a, I don't know. He, I think it's kind of stupid.
0: He's yeah, like that's... so
2: into that, like, <laughs> fuck the system kind of thing, especially live. Yeah.
0: Right. So like, that's what it is. And then my dad turns it down and I'm like, shit, we're going to have to go return the CD. And my dad was like, do not let your mother know I'm the one that bought this for you. And then turned it back up and we listened <laughs> to it on the way home. I was like, yeah. How important was
2: that, that your dad Huge. was sanctioning it, right? That he was like, He was basically walking you through that transition. I mean, like, okay, Josh, like, I know you, I trust you. I think you're old enough to handle the regular stuff. He fucking knew what was out there. It didn't surprise him that the number one punk band in the world would say the F word. Like your dad's not a fucking idiot, right? So he, he knew what he was doing. Like now as an almost 40 year old with a kid, I know that your dad knew what he was doing and and even when he heard it, he's like, OK, I can trust you now. Still don't tell mom. But like he was really kind of carrying you across that threshold. Mm-hmm. And I just bet that that would have been so
0: impactful and important. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think very much so. And like, I don't think I had the like intuitive or self-reflective chops to recognize how important something like that might have been. Right. Um, but as I, you know, continue to develop that within myself, I look back on my childhood and stories similar to that from both my mom and my dad, um, and other members of my family, where it's like, wow, like so many people in these like deconstruction spaces that I find myself swimming in had shit way worse than I did. <laughs> like right. my parents were like kind of edgy in that regard, right? Um, so I don't know. It, it's it's interesting. Um, but I guess if we were to um keep kind of pushing things on uh how how and when did you so like I guess this was Sherwood the first band like did you just like hit Sherwood and we're like wow this worked this is successful or did you have other things first and like how, what like what was that process like how did those things kind of come about
2: I was in bands from 14 to like I was in a band nonstop from age 14 to age 30 or 32 or something. I mean, so I had been in plenty of bands. I had, I'm sure, like, I definitely had high hopes for those bands. My first band, the 14 year old band was called Permanent Holiday. Pretty good band name. And uh, when we opened up for Project 86, speaking of the youth group, if you like this, if you like Rage Against the Machine, you like Project 86. Uh, And I told my mom, I was like, we have to, like, you have to let me play this show. Like, they're on a label. This could be our big break. You know, I was at 14. So I had always hoped that the bands would would do something. But Sherwood was the first time that uh, I and anybody else in my band had sort of taken it seriously as adults. Like, we modified our entire lives to get Sherwood going. We practiced four to five nights a week. While we were in college, we built our own practice space so that we could practice five nights a week. Uh, we went through all kinds of shenanigans promoting uh, our first EP. Um, and it even took us a while to get to we had changed our name to Sherwood. We had a couple EPs as a previous band name that weren't really working. And it was it was a long process, but that's the first time that. I was in a group of people that were willing to put the work in and then lo and behold that's the one that worked. And when I say it worked, it's not like we became a huge band. We never had any significant radio play. Uh but we did make a living for about 8 years and you know, we sold like 75,000 records, which is nothing to sneeze at. Got um, over we- 2 million
1: downloads of some of your uh, songs on Spotify.
2: Yeah, I, I looked recently, it's like something like seven and a half million streams on Spotify in the last seven years. So there's like some residual audience there. And it took us all over the world. I mean, it was awesome. It's an incredible, incredible experience. Um, I think a lot of it was the hard work that especially the first four or five years of our career, we we sweated it out, man. Um, but yeah, so that was a long answer. But yeah, that was the first time that anything sort of worked you might say
1: and so when you think about just kind of going back just a little bit of the root structure so we go back to that kind of core story of the draw to the 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 beach boys that music resonating which again i think all of us uh, as mammals whether just purely in uh, evolution or imago day whatever the variables be we're drawn to music and this soundtrack to life um we understand the power of music uh you then started leaning into the uh capacity of creating music with the smash hit otter pops which still all of us are uh singing <laughs> to our for, kids yeah Clam for Outer Pops. <laughs> Actually, I really, I really, really want to hear that song. It's uh,
2: you don't, you don't need to. I, 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 don't believe you. you. I
1: think this is false humility. This is false no, humility, it is Dan. Oh <laughs> so, it's really and, not. Then, and then, and then Sherwood. Uh, so, so in in the evolution of this, now that you look back, right? You were you were young then. Uh, kind of this magnetic draw to this career path. Uh, the willingness to give so much of your time and energy, rehearsing four or five nights a week. When, when you look back, uh, what do you f- feel like? Maybe is the source of that uh, gravitational pull. Why? Why this? Why? Why not become a psychologist then, or become a lawyer, or become, uh, you know, a mechanic? You know, what? What was it at that point that, in retrospect, now with your current understanding of self, was was the gravitational draw?
2: I think honestly, it it is that I have a natural felicity with music. I think I just understand it. I feel more comfortable in it than other things. Um, for me, music is is pretty mathematical. Um, I I think of it a lot of times in terms of numbers and which numbers go together and what's what sounds good together. Um, other people, I think, write entirely on feel. I I don't. I mean, I write. I could write a lot of what I write. I could plan out without touching an instrument and know roughly what it's going to sound like Of course you still find things that end up in the final piece that you didn't, you know, I, and I don't want to overstate that case. I'm I'm not Brian Wilson who can just like hear five parts in his mind. You know, I don't have that sort of genius level skill, but I, it's just, it, it comes easy for me. And, um, I can own, I have a very hard time working on things that I'm not interested in, that I don't enjoy. Uh, I'm a very bad employee, basically. Uh, I've done, I've had a very uh, poor experiences working jobs before for anybody else. So I don't know. I think it's, I think it's partly that. Um, I think it's probably that felicity is the main thing though.
0: How? How like your time then in <clears throat> in Sherwood? How did that uh like interact with your um? Just to kind of tie it in with you know what we talk about on rethinking faith, like how did that kind of interact with, if at all, uh your current like space you are in like faith wise your your spirituality? Like did Sherwood facilitate that? Was Sherwood something that you used to like? push that away uh i don't know because you i mean you toured with like some other similar band like was sherwood considered like a christian band did you guys use that language not really no we
2: weren't and and our label tried to get our 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 biggest album a different light our second record they tried to get that into christian bookstores and they they uh did not take it there was not enough religious content and there was like a i used the phrase a hell of a time and they didn't like that. They specifically fucking off that
0: note.
1: <laughs> Jesus, Jesus, take the wheel. I can't believe it hell
0: of a time. <laughs> but you you toured with like Reliant K and such, right? That's so the was only there... Christian band we ever toured okay. with. Yeah. Okay. And that
2: was after they had sort of theoretically transitioned to the general market. But we were known as Christians to a lot of people. We were there were a lot of bands like that that were like, you know, and we toured with a lot of those bands. Um the singer of waking Ashland was a Christian this day and age were Christians. Uh, Bryce from the rocket summer was a Christian. Like there, there was definitely like people thought Copeland were Christians. I think only a couple of them were, um, you know, so, and there were a lot of bands on tooth and nail that kind of blurred those lines. But so we, people knew. And then, you know, if you listen to the lyrics, like every sixth song might have something in it that, you know, you could take as sort of Christian, Imagery, But I think that what was going on for me sort of autobiographically is that college was a difficult time mental health wise. Like I had the most depression I've ever had in terms of like a season of life. I had a lot of anxiety, a lot of panic attacks, didn't know what to call it yet. Undiagnosed, um, not even self-diagnosed at that time. And what brought me out of it was going on tour and also i was studying philosophy which tends to make people depressed and i was a christian kid studying philosophy in a state college so it wasn't like particularly it, it was rough i mean there was a lot of things a lot of transition a lot of upheaval and so you
0: had the god's not dead experience <laughs> <laughs> yeah no
2: and I, you know my favorite professor is now a Catholic, he was kind of flirting with Catholicism at that point. And he was very into Aquinas and, you know, very open to sort of religious ideas, but would never show any of his cards. Um, and he was very encouraging to me, uh, despite being fairly stoic. But so then I think when we went on tour, um, I kind of I functionally took a break from most of that angst. And I was like, I'm going to be in a band for a while. Like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to focus on this. I'm going to put my free time into writing the next record. I'm going to, uh, and I, I ran the business with Nate, our singer. We basically co-ran the band. Not always not always the most efficient uh, way to do things. But, um, and then I, once I got a little break and I, I was happier, I was also exercising every day. So I was like using my body, um, you know, getting aerobic exercise every night and also a lot had a lot of meaning and purpose. I was a part of a startup business, which was my dream. And even though we weren't making a lot of money, there was, you know, for eight years or so, pretty solid evidence that it was getting better and better, maybe the first six or seven years of that. And so then i once i had a little space that's when i started reading more theologically oriented stuff in my downtime so i read a bunch of the russian novelists i read a book called if grace is true which was like a quaker argument for universalism um this is before i don't know i don't know if david bentley hart was writing yet maybe he wasn't writing much or he wasn't very well known yet i remember being sent like uh, a blog post of his, you know, later into those years. Um, and so I started thinking about science, thinking about LGBTQ issues, thinking about universalism, um, and thinking about the old Testament and violence in the old Testament, read some stuff on that, you know, a few years into that touring thing. And that's when the wheel started turning for what would eventually become things like you have permission. So, so in that process
1: uh, where I I guess, I guess in the unfolding, so that was college, that was Sherwood, Mm -hmm. when did things begin to wind down for Sherwood and you begin to kind of pick your next career path, evolutionary leap, you know, what was, what was that shift process? Was there a grief in that, uh, a loss of what could have been, what, what, what was kind of that evolutionary process?
2: Probably a lot of experiential avoidance at the time. Um, 2011 is the first year that Sherwood didn't play any shows. We officially broke up in 2012, Um, but we stopped touring at the end of 2010. And I went back to school, finished my bachelor's in philosophy, worked odd jobs before finding out that I could be a commercial composer around 2012, 2013. And uh, I I started, yeah, just cut that out. Um, and what was your question, Greg?
1: I just saying, what was the evolutionary process, right? Because here's Sherwood, your whole vision is imagining. I'm imagining it's going to be rock. Oh, okay. Uh, Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And I think that what I did was I put some of those eggs into the basket of my new band, which I had started in Seattle which was called Wayfair. And then we had to change our name to Pacific gold. And that was a pretty like, now I think of it as like a pretty experimental project. It was rewriting hymns in like an indie rock kind of a mold. Musically, I really like a lot of what we did. Lyrically, vocally, I just think that the experiment, I don't know, some songs, it works better than others. I mostly find the lyrics to be like, they're not really fitting. It's, it's like a, that was an interesting art project, but didn't quite connect. Um, and I think that I thought, well, this could band could be big. And I think that that was me not mourning the end of something that had, been you know, I, I would have told people it was really important in my life, um, but grew more distant from some of the guys in those years didn't do a good job communicating with each other about various ideas or plans or requests we had gotten. And then eventually in 2016, we wrote and recorded uh, like a reunion album with some time passed. And that was a very positive experience, but it was never supposed to be as all encompassing for our lives. And we were able to enjoy it. And we played some shows and that was really really fun um and that sort of helped us kind of but i think for yeah 5 years there it was just kind of icky and mm-hmm. unresolved and not processed really by me um maybe by some of the other guys you'd have to ask them
1: so so now you know you're at this point so you're almost 40 you got kids you've got this wild path that's evolved where you're on the path to become a psychologist, uh, that you've been a host of a podcast that focuses on theology and some real threads of philosophy. And now, uh, you know, you've been, like you said, your primary lens has been musician, not psychologist or theologian. Um, Now at this season of life where you are cognizant of all the, what, not all, but you're in the process of growing in cognizance of all of these forces uh, that are e- evolving within you, all these magnetic draws holistically, holistically viewing these pieces together. what what where would you define, and maybe this is too esoteric, but where would you define describe the tapestry of the interwoven threads of the the primary, those primary threads of the podcast, of the music, and of your psychology degree. And then of course, we're gonna to have to add in being a, a husband and father. Uh, but kind of as, as you begin to say, what is it in all those pieces that drives you to expression? You know, what what is what is the flowing from you that is driving you to pour yourself out into all these places? Is that too, is that too big?
2: It's a great question. Uh, I think that in terms of work, which is encompassing all of those things a little different than, you know, marriage and fatherhood. I think that the things that drive me are creation and, and explanation. Um, so I want to understand phenomena. So I started depolarize because I wanted to understand, well, I guess I had started to understand the causes of our increased polarization and I wanted to do my part, my little part to like stop Trump from becoming president. That was my initial thought. Of course I had no effect, but uh, it did lead into these areas that I was very interested in, that I became very interested in, like what, why do we act this way? Why are we so unpersuadable? And, and that leads to all kinds of questions then about faith if we're so unpersuadable, what do we do with people's claims to know the truth? But like, if somebody presented them with something more true, would they know it? And if they wouldn't, then how strongly should we take their claims? And, you know, all these, so it starts to bleed out. So, and this new project of using music as the lens, I'm still doing a lot of like, why did I fall in love with the music I fell in love with? What was going on with me at the time? Can And then can I hopefully, and can other listeners as they apply that to their lives, figure some things out about themselves, right? If I can get close to the truth, uh, then I'm probably getting close to some more universal principles about the way that people interact with music, with their upbringing, with whatever. So I think it's discovery and explanation and, and sort of I'm really drawn to that. And then I'm drawn to creation, which I think the podcasts and albums and Havana swim club project and Wayfair Pacific gold, trying out this hymns thing, obviously Sherwood like writing, making, putting things together. I'm all, I'm very interested in listening and reading about how filmmakers made their films. Like I just am into that. I, I like creation. And I like excavation. I mean, those are kind of excavation's a more fun word. So those are kind of my threads that pull all of that stuff together, I think.
1: I love that. Dude, that's that's so eloquent. And those are uh yeah, I, I think we can unpack a lot there. So with within the the creation, the excavation, what do you feel like there is a in the creation is there a a message is—is is there a frequency? Is there a virtue uh, or a vice <laughs> that you are imparting? You know what—what what is driving the creation? I'm just out of curiosity. What—what what, what is that flow? Do, do you I, I you, this c- creation question. excavation doesn't flow from you know ex nihilo. You know that's it's it's flowing from some source. What do you, do you have an, a sense of what that might be?
2: I wonder if they're different you know my guess is that the excavation thing is probably the same force that drives scientists you know of of any stripe kind of people who are naturally wired to want to know how things work um it's maybe like in a less mechanical engineering kind of a way like I I'm not drawn as much to to that how things work that way but more of a humanities version of it. Um, and then in terms of the creation, <laughs> man, I don't fucking know. I, I would love to know the answer of what drives that. I I feel compelled in a way I don't really understand to always be putting something together, you know? And, and <clears throat> it's been interesting that the podcast format, it's either good or bad or both that you are able to put things out much more quickly than writing albums or writing books, for instance. And I have really been drawn to that. Now, maybe I've just put out a bunch of pretty good stuff, and I could have been spending that time on a lot less really good stuff. And I I suppose, depending on what people think of of pretty good vibrations, there might be a little bit of evidence there because those episodes take way 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 more time to make than interview episodes if you have permission or people might go no you're better at interviewing <laughs> you know and then maybe that's what I'm better at doing and that's fine if that's the case but at any rate it's like I, I just am compelled dude like maybe that's a good question for my therapist for me to work on with my therapist why why am I compelled i I think I understand more the the wanting to explain things. I will add this to the excavation part. When I, the ways that I have combated my panic disorder most effectively have been through knowledge, through understanding the thing that is making me anxious and like thinking my way out of it. So we didn't talk about this today, but I've talked about it elsewhere that. My my lifelong greatest panic attack trigger is end times theology, end times teachings, predictions, all that horseshit. I call it horseshit because literally no one's ever been right. Zero percent of predictions have been correct mathematically. So uh, it's horseshit. And learning about the way that that particular kind of horseshit has become popular and what, what it, how it appeals to people and what have other, what have other Christians thought, what are other ways they've read Daniel and revelation? That was like the first time I was like, oh, I'm kind of coming out of my anxiety about this here because I'm getting a lay of the land. So I think that the excavation is directly related to my panic disorder that I learned that that was a way. And then you start to do that publicly. Other people find it meaningful. Now you also have this meaning and purpose of performing this service, not just for yourself, but for others. And then I recognize other people who perform that service for me, like Jonathan Haidt and his book, The Righteous Mind, which is why I became a psychologist. So what I understand less is the creation. I I guess I'll just another way of saying, I don't really understand that part, but I do understand, I think, the excavation and explanation
1: well not to not to put you in the uh freud's chair here but i just going back <laughs> to your early early comment and josh you, i know I'm, I'm blathering on here but i wonder if in the creation again our, our motivations are so primal right i mean our motivations for things are so uh core uh longing core longing for identity for security mm-hmm. for some sense of uh autonomy and power um and that that excavation is drawn for some sense of clarity and order that eases anxiety, uh, mm-hmm. within that realm. Yeah. And again, when you were drawn to the beach boys that were thunder free, man, it was a, a thunder free space, uh, yeah. in that same space, you know, and when I listened to Havana swim club, that it, it, it is not my chemical romance. I mean, you're, it is not, it's the opposite of angsty. Like literally yeah. you're listening to, when I listen to your music, and i'm not I'm not shitting. It, it My body unbraces. Like it makes me like literally woven within the tones and the 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 melodies, the instruments you're choosing. like it it makes me want to completely unbrace my body. And it's called Havana Swim Club. Um, and so, you know, again, I, I just am curious if there's this, in the same sense of the excavation, uh, and this sense of clarity, uh, of information brings you peace and harmony, wondering if in the creation, it's also this expression of, of offering to yourself into the world, that same sense, uh, of, of, of a thunder free zone. So, uh, I
2: think I, that's I won't, probably, I, that might be part of it. I, I think that's less like what I think is probably more, I've always been an open book. I score very low on privacy in personality tests. I think that I just want attention and I want people to, I want connection, but I also just want people to like hear or see something I did and react to it. And I mean, I don't want them to react poorly. I want it to be good. I want them to find it helpful or interesting or have it open their bodies up or whatever however you phrase that um but there's an ego element to that uh i i have a very healthy ego probably unhealthy in its health um and you know the the music thing is is interesting because there's a bit more of a desire in myself to connect with people over these songs I've loved for 20 years, uh, that is scratching a different itch than the theology and psychology stuff scratches. So I'm curious to see what that will be like, but I think that the original motivation that like was baked in and that I learned early on was it feels really good when people pay attention to stuff that I make. Uh, that's probably the, the start of it is my guess. And my dad would like, he never wrote any books, but he put together a book's worth of material. This, um, this sort of six up to 16 week class he would teach. And he taught that for decades and he taught it in Europe and he taught it in California at various churches. And I think he loved that too. He loved like, I put this thing together. Here's my, here's like a uh, marriage family therapists look at the book of Genesis. That's what it was. And he loved, you know, performing that for people basically and getting their feedback and seeing that they found it useful. And I think I'm no different. You know, it's just that I have different medium and different topics uh, but not even all that different topics, I guess, with the psychology stuff. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know. I like your explanation, but I think it's probably, like, a little too kind to be
0: accurate. <laughs> yeah, and I, I I, wonder, too, like, based off how you're talking about that, because what I was going to say, you know, we talked about the three centers of knowing a lot on Rethinking Faith. And you've, you've described a lot of, uh, like, heady motivation. And I think creativity, although you use your mind for that and you talked about how like you piece together music more mathematically, I still wonder if the creativeness or music is maybe a way that you access um, some more of like the heart or body space. Because you talked about feeling and that's like that's more there. I mean, you can argue with me about like yeah. how emotions work because you're a psychologist, but no, no, no. I, <laughs> like, I does that make, you know no, what I, I think mean? You're
2: right. No, I think you're right that, that maybe, um, maybe music is my way into my body for a person who's like, I haven't been particularly comfortable with like the shape and in shapeness of my body since I was in like fourth grade. So, uh, I think it's a way. I think I have a Gnostic tendency to want to live in my mind and not in my body, and maybe music necessarily puts me back in my body. Um, You know, there's rhythm in your pulse like it's, you know, uh, rhythmic movement among humans uh, apparently predates language in human evolution. Like so that might just be the way to get me to do something with my fucking body. <laughs> you know, it's like okay, fine, music. Here Dan, use that. Uh so I bet that there's something to that. I haven't thought of it that way.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I was just wondering. And also to you're right. uh, Greg to one of your questions um, and Dan hates this so I just but I just think I'm only saying this in spite of Dan basically but I think part of explanation is because Dan is the seven on the Enneagram in the same way that you and I are
2: I do hate <laughs> notice
0: that. the eye rolls I do but, hate it. <laughs> but but it has some explanatory power even though and what is it it the Enneagram doesn't hold up is the nice way not. you phrased it
2: yeah it doesn't hold up you can listen to the episode for
0: more <laughs> it was more a good episode that. yeah it was a it was a good episode Um, But I guess one more question just that I have, Dan, because you're doing this autobiographical music podcast, basically, right? Yeah. I want to know, do you see, uh, even though it's not as explicit, maybe rather implicit, um, things like Depolarize and also You Have Permission, also in a way kind of autobiographical, just ask because I like, I know for me, like, the reason that when I invite people on in the podcast, it's because I want to talk to them, it's because I'm interested in this thing personally. And like, rethinking faith, formally, theology doesn't suck, has just been my evolution, for yeah. lack of a better term. So, like, yeah. do you think that though that has like those things have played a role into you know, I'm getting my side D now. I have this like new found, like I want to integrate this music stuff back into my life and like do this podcast. Right. Like has it, are the, do they interact at all?
2: Yeah. The way in which they're the same is that I can only ever work on something I'm interested in. And so like it's autobiographical in that sense, this is where I'm at right now. And if I look back, I look at depolarize, I look at reconstruct, which I co-hosted with my friend, John Raines. I look at early, you have permission, whatever. I can go oh that's the stuff I was interested in then. What's different about this project is that I haven't done before is I have not applied the excavating tools to my own story in any other than um an aspect here or there or a particular memory I have that relates to what this person wrote a book about or you know or whatever. But this is like taking my life story and breaking it into chunks and looking very deeply and thinking about thinking about possible connections, really digging in in a way that I have not done in any of this audio format stuff. Um, I probably did it a little bit with some songs over the years, but, you know, like I have a song about going on vacation with my family and, you know, childhood and it's, it's called Lake Tahoe. Um, you know, I've got some songs about that stuff, but this is, yeah, this is unique in its focus, and it's kind of like the amount of that excavation about my own life that it requires to be good
1: and as I, as that yeah, I, I can't imagine the number of hours I and mean, one thing you're you like you're you're so good at producing, right? I mean, it's, it's and uh, even at second breath, we use some of your music that you've uh, created, it's so rich and it's it's amazing it's potency and again in terms of accessing uh, these different facets of our the emotional expression and human experience,
2: so but, was it important that we started and ended our conversation with ass kissing? Is that what's going on here?
1: Hey, listen, uh, I'm not. I'm. I'm going I'm I'm to say. I'm going. to, I'm going to interrupt the ass kissing to say, "Fuck you for bringing up that point." Uh,
2: but there we go. Not now I feel <laughs> more. Yeah, is that balance? Fuck that bring, you, Dan. That,
1: fuck that you, Dan. Fuck yep. you, Dan.
0: And, we need and, some more yang. You're amazing.
1: Okay. You're amazing. And so, uh, if we could just bring those together. But so there's, this pieces of why. Again, I'm always interested in why, right? I'm always interested in what motivates us to do anything. And I'm with you, man. I, I just, I can't do anything that, in any moment that I'm not particularly drawn to. And I, you know, it, someone was making fun of me. I'm 50 years old, right? And someone asked me for a, a resume. I, I've I, the last I've never actually the last time I applied for a job was like in 1994, mm-hmm. uh, and. It's all just been kind of evolution, but I had one actual real job where I was a bank teller at First Union National Bank. And I did that for a year while I was raising money to become a missionary in Africa. But it was like the one normal job that I've had in my whole life. And and I put first and they asked me for a resume I put that there for some sense of credibility, you know, and they were like, Jesus, this is like 1994 and you were yeah. a teller for one year. <laughs> G- give me a break. What the fuck are you doing? Putting this on your resume. Yeah. But I was just trying to be like the the normal person, because I just feel like right. my whole life has been such a weird evolutionary uh, process, but, uh, but forgive me, I digress. But with, with your weird evolutionary process of all of these, again, I'm I'm on the tapestry uh, metaphor, but all of these pieces flowing together, uh, this is what you're interested in now. You're you're wanting to tell your story within the evolution of your music expression, like uh, and 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 Josh knows. I I think about this on occasion. Richard Rohr was at some monastery, uh, I forget which one, and and he was walking down this path, and there was this freaking uh, monk who was completely isolated by himself, didn't speak to anybody. And so Roar saw this guy walking down the path, and so he steps aside. You know, this is this holy. You know, we ascribed him holy uh, introvert. Um, and so, as the guy was walking past uh, Roar, uh, he stops and, and says to Richard, "You know, uh, hey Richard, you're famous. People listen to you." Uh, he said, he, "This was his one message." He said, "Tell tell the people that God's not out there, but in here." Right? It was his one message, his distilled message of all of his contemplation and isolation was that God's not out there, but in here. So in, in pulling this together, all this effort, all of this producing, all of these hours, like what, why the fuck are you doing it? What is your, what is your one message uh, of why uh, of the, of your why and, and make it good and sexy. Otherwise it's a bunch of horseshit and we all know it. So <laughs> really land this plane, like Sully Sullenberger in the, <laughs> in manhattan
2: well i think that there's a thread for me of people being freed up from unnecessary constraints uh from various roadblocks like that that's the through line in my mind and so you have permission was was named really uh very similar like i was taught this naming convention by this guy Jesse Bryan who um you might remember from the rise and fall of Mars Hill podcast he was the marketing guy and he said one way you can name something is if you're falling out of a plane and you can yell one phrase or sentence to people about the thing you're doing what would you yell? And so I was like you have permission. Like that's that's what I'm trying to say at least especially at the beginning it's like you can think about these different things and there are a lot of people who try and gatekeep and tell you that you can't and they don't have a leg to stand on they're they're full of shit so that's related to all of it i think that i i'm less clear i'm i'm a little bit more in the discovery phase of pretty good vibrations which is really just a named as a pun um good vibrations being. The Beach Boys song, and my musical life being pretty good, not as good as that, uh, but it's also just I like the wit that I could do a lot of different things with that name um, that fall under this music sort of music analysis umbrella, and I don't know, but I think I do think that I've had a hard time. I'm processing this in real time. I've had a hard time acknowledging that musical expression musical creation m- shared musical experience is as valuable as the more overtly sort of theological philosophical stuff and i think that that's an assumption that was baked into me growing up evangelical a kind of a kind of built-in gnosticism of spirit over body and i think that it's false I've no, I've, I've not believed that intellectually for a while, but maybe just as someone who's better with ideas than I am with other things, like my wife is better at making people feel loved than I am, but I'm better with ideas. (laughs) So I'll work with ideas and she can make people feel loved. And I wonder if the music thing is ultimately a way to, to try and, pull more of those things together and integrate them. Like I have been kind of ignoring this side of my life and yet what is there or is there some roadblock removal in there? And if I can find true things about my life through this lens of music, well then true things tend to remove roadblocks and, and clear shit out of the way anyway so maybe that's the connection but i'm much earlier in this project so it's it's a little bit harder to say
0: yeah well right on man um i i don't know i i've had a lot of fun in this conversation hopefully (laughs) you have you have found it as fun and edifying as i have i have good questions yeah it's it's just been cool like we'll go back to the ass kissing thing, but just as somebody who like first came to you have permission as like a fan of what you were doing and then uh, shifted into like somebody who, I don't know, I would use the word friend. Hopefully that's appropriate. Um, yeah. Like consider you a friend having this kind of conversation outside of just the typical, like how I, you know, how I hear you on my commute to work or whatever with you have permission right. or something like that um, has just been like a lot of fun and um insightful and i i don't know i just think it's cool to get the like greg said the the why's or the uh like i don't know the the motivation whatever it's just it's cool it's like a different kind of interaction uh that i'm used to having and i appreciate it so thanks for uh being vulnerable in that sense and for hanging out and uh yeah putting up with our uh, ass kissing and bullshit <laughs> and i'll well, say fuck you even just it, to make you know to, to balance it just to, to bring it.
1: balance it's balance of the yeah. force it's always good to bring some uh fung to the shui and and just again even though i'm 50 and i'm 11 years your elder and I'm ironically still your podcast child suckling on your pig teat mm-hmm. uh pig yeah. teat uh i just want to say it's it's been a gift man it's no shit like i i always i always love listening to your podcast you're I always love, uh, appreciate your mind and, and the heart that's behind it. And now too just, uh, getting more of your nuance, uh, of, of your journey and, and the complexity of you again. I mean, I just think, uh, that when, when we have the courage to, uh, anyway, I just was, I just put a post up the other day. I've, I've been reading Bronnie Wares. I don't know if you know her. She's a hospice nurse out of Australia. She wrote a book called the five, biggest regrets of the five regrets of the dying and she was hospice interviewed hundreds of people and 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 the the biggest regret of people was that uh they they didn't have the courage uh to live according to their own desires but to other people's expectations that was the biggest regret of people dying Mm -hmm. and uh when i think about what it means to live fully a full a a full expression i'm convinced that until and we talked about this until our need for internal integrity, whatever drives us in that, that that sense of who we are transcends our need for inclusion or belonging or attachment, and we can actually be our fullest selves. Us being fully us is exactly what the world needs. I think that's the expression in, in Christianity. I think that's the expression in secular humanism, uh, in, in Buddhism. I think that us being having the courage to be fully us even when it's unpopular and it's always costly to do that is exactly what the world needs. And and what I hear in you, your whole journey is this process of you trying really leaning into discovering who you really are uh, and uh, trying to, and right now even as with this new project, your new podcast, it's, it's in the process of exploring that you don't have the answers for it. You're just leaning into following this gravitational pull of this, desire and you're not sure where it leads you just know it's authentically from your core and 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 that's that's really it you know no one else can tell us how our life is supposed to be we just have to sit in the mystery of what is drawing us magnetically from within and have the balls have the courage uh to follow it and so ask hissing session ending here because i'm i'm just i feel like i'm on that same journey trying to do the same thing i know josh is Uh, as as we're trying to live into what it means to be our fullest expression of ourselves. And I just think, Dan, the the way you're living it out is uh, a real, uh, it's inspirational and, and, and I'm not putting you on a fucking Hallmark movie uh, and after Sunday afternoon special, but I just want to say it, it really is an inspiration in terms of your courage to uh, push against uh, systems that could hem you in and that you would, compromise your authentic self to belong and just saying i've just got to really uh, lean into who i am and explore that so i just want to say uh fucking a uh well done you uh it's inspirational and i just really appreciate it and that's no shit Uh, i just really appreciate you being you so thanks for coming on and being so vulnerable authentic and uh uh, real throughout this conversation and i appreciate you
2: you guys asked some really good questions you got me thinking about some of this stuff in a way I have not thought about it yet it's going to help me as I continue working on this project so I appreciate uh, I I had a lot of fun challenging and interesting questions I also love talking about myself so that was very fun for me as well (laughs) I like making things that other people listen and respond to Uh, so like the level of the number of compliments the sheer number was overwhelming but the spirit i accept it thank you i feel very good about myself right now now i'm gonna go get toys thrown at me by my son and get knocked down a few pegs um but yeah thank you guys so much
0: yeah dan thanks for hanging out and uh well i can't i i guess i can say i'll see you at beer camp soon but this comes out way after that so now it's just this weird time thing
2: it will have been great to
0: have (laughs) seen you at beer camp (laughs) nailed
2: it. <laughs> <laughs> it all right guys beer camp was so fun it was oh, the best man trip, remember can those you believe times trip? trip
1: is so funny that, that time was hilarious that beer remember that beer remember
2: that delicious. time remember that beer we had what a great time
0: yeah remember how <laughs> fucking amazingly delicious that west coast ipl called a hashtag I'm process party excited. that josh patterson made uh excited. was it was delicious <laughs> <laughs> that's my ego boost for the night uh but yeah anyway listeners thanks for hanging out as always uh we'll put some shit for you in the uh notes or whatever they're called and uh (laughs) fuck yeah guys fuck you dan uh peace and love
1: (laughs) peace and love